All right. Go on in, grab a seat, please. We'll get started. I'm going to be looking at that thing. All right. I'm going to pray. Father, we thank you again for your family. We thank you for the diversity that is uh, present in your body, the different personalities, the different strengths, gifts, abilities, talents, ideas. And we thank you that you cause us to come together as family, to work together as family, to accomplish something we could never accomplish on our own. We love you. Amen. Well, we're going to kind of try to have a little fun. We're, so, we're talking about relationships. Last week we finished with some foundational relational things we talked about. And there should be childcare this week. Glory to God. And um, so anyway, I'm continuing on that relational foundation laying. And so the things I want to talk about tonight, they're things that should hold true in any relationship, whether that be friendship, family-ship, marriage-ship. Uh, marriage, friendship, family, whatever. It, it's the, it's, these are foundational principles that apply in any setting. However, um, I want to do it in a little bit different way to start. So it's going to be two part. And the first part is called how to destroy a friendship. And the reason that I want to do it this way is because if I don't, and we don't have a little bit of fun and laughter with it, I think we'll all be so heavy and weighed down by the time I get to the second part that we won't really be able to continue. Because what I want to look at are some characteristics, some attributes that are opposed to biblical principles as to how to be in good, godly, healthy relationships. And I want to present it in such a manner that's semi-humorous because we will see things as we go through that we do. And it's okay to laugh at it. If you were there Sunday, looked at the difference between under grace and under law, we, we discovered that it's okay to make a mistake. And so we're going to see ourselves in some of these relational mistakes that I'm going to um, make mention of in the first half. And in the second half, we'll look at how do you maintain a long-term friendship. Okay. So how to destroy a friendship. <laughs> It's kind of funny. It's, it's just funny. It's funny. How to destroy a friendship. Find the perfect friend. It's not about you. It's not about anything about you. You just have to find the person who's perfect to love you the right way that you need to be loved. Friendship has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with finding the perfect person to love me the way I need to be loved. Number two, distrust everyone. They don't really like you no matter what they say. Don't believe in people. They're going to let you down because everyone does. Give up on people. Ah, they blew their chance. They'll never change. Just give up on them. Be offended when things don't go your way or someone does something you don't like. I didn't really care for the way he said that, and I didn't get invited to his crocheting extravaganza last year. What a jerk. So, to destroy a friendship, make sure that you're offended at every opportunity that you can come up with. Be envious. I cannot believe he bought that car. What an egomaniac. Why can't I have a car like that? Be envious of any blessing that comes upon anyone that you have relationship with. 
It will make things far healthier going forward. Be selfish. I could care less who needs someone to spend time with them. I'm fine. They can just learn how to deal with it on their own. I've got my stuff. That's good enough for me. Make sure that others have invested in you and then take what you've gotten and go do your own thing with it. Don't worry about anybody else after you. Make sure that you're really ungrateful. Let others serve you and love you and never say thank you or offer any kind of appreciation. Let others go out of their way to take care of you and make sure you never say thank you or appreciate them. People love that. Be a fault finder. Nitpick every detail of your friends' lives to make yourself feel better about yourself. It'll help you appreciate yourself more and dislike others more. And when you find your perfect friend, there'll be nothing there to nitpick. Feel responsible to make everyone else perfect and cause them to fulfill their destiny. Take responsibility. Think that your way of doing things is better than anyone else's way of doing things. And when someone else does something different, look at them and think, what a fear-mongering doomsdayer. I wish they had some faith because they would never think the way they do if they did. Your way is the only way. Make sure that you're harsh, abrupt, and unkind. Do your best to talk to people like they're idiots. People love it when you yell at them and you treat them like they're from another planet. The dumber you make people feel, the more impressive you will seem to them and the more they'll like you. That's a, that's a good one. Think that you're better and that you know better than everyone else. Have such a feeling of superiority that you pity those who don't think like you do. Make sure you do not take the advice of elders or those who have gone through a life phase before you. Instead, be convinced that you already know everything and that you cannot learn more. They don't know what you do because you're really close to God. No one can teach you anything. Always do your best to feel like you deserve better and that no one values you like you should be valued. Tell yourself how much better you should have it. In fact, you should probably have the lifestyle of a 55-year-old multimillionaire when you're in your mid-20s in your first job with no prior experience. Be a consumer, not a distributor. Make sure you're getting all the handouts you need and to heck with anyone who wasn't at the front of the line. As long as you've got yours, others can fend for themselves. This is an important one. To ensure the destruction of a friendship, make sure you talk about the people you don't like with their friends so their friends look down on them. If you disagree with someone, make sure you talk to all of your friends about how ridiculous those people are so that your friends will dislike them as much as you do. If you don't agree, you cannot be friends with them. Don't take any precautionary measures to protect the sanctity of your relationships because you and your friends are more mature than that. Sit and talk idly with people of the opposite gender about sex, temptation, your past sins, and they won't be affected of it because they're mature. Do whatever you feel like doing. Friendship is all about you. It's not what you should do or committed to do. Don't worry about following through on your commitments. People can forgive you. And for heaven's sake, if it's doing something for the church, don't even think twice about bailing on it. You're a volunteer. Make sure you dislike yourself. Make sure you dislike yourself. The more you hate yourself, the humbler you are. Be completely dishonest about your state of being. It doesn't really matter. Just tell people what you think they want to hear so that they'll like you more. Don't worry about being honest. Just pretend to be who you think they will like. Was there an adult in with the children's care? Okay, just checking. Make sure you're a Debbie Downer so that people will feel sorry for you. 
their sympathy and pity will help transform you. The more you feel sorry for yourself, the more people will give you handouts. <laughs> the heck if they're not at the front of the line. Don't acknowledge wrongdoing or apologize ever. We're not under law, we're under grace. We do not need to acknowledge fault. And lastly, but most importantly, make sure that you hold grudges. Spending the next 70 years thinking about how someone looked at you wrong will make you feel better each day as the years go by. Okay. Anybody see themselves in any of those? I didn't think so. I was laughing as I put my notes together. I was like, well, there's me. I had to apologize to Adam last week because I was supposed to go over for dinner and completely forgot. Had the complete wrong week. Totally forgot. Had to apologize to my brother an hour beforehand because I was uh, a stubborn, um, bullheaded older brother uh, a couple weeks ago in a meaningless argument. So I had to call my brother and say, hey, since you didn't answer and you're probably sleeping, um, I'm going to leave the lame voicemail of the month. But he's used to that, so I saw myself numerous times as I, uh, as I prepared this, so it made it a little bit more fun to laugh at myself, so. But seriously, uh, what I really want to get into is how do we maintain long-term friendships and relationships? And actually, what I um, was able to do was I took 1 Corinthians 13, and I flipped it into how does this flesh out? If you guys don't know, 1 Corinthians 13 is the chapter that gets read at every wedding on the planet. Um, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So, what I want to do when looking at relationships, is demonstrate how love is not a feeling, it's an action. Because I think in relationships, we're tempted to fall into, well, if this is a really good friendship, I should feel good all the time, feel nice all the time. Love makes me feel warm and tingly. But 1 Corinthians defines love as an action. It's things that we do, ways that we behave, how we are. And if you look at 1 Corinthians 13 and you compare it to the, the fruits of the Spirit, they're basically identical. Goodness, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. They're all there in 1 Corinthians 13. And so there's somewhat of a formula for us to understand that friendship is not about finding the perfect friend. It's about becoming the perfect friend. Having great relationships is more about us being transformed into the likeness of Christ than it is about finding people that we share like interests with and agree on everything over. Number one, and you'll notice if you were to uh, have written down everything that I said in the first part, that these are the, the contrary or the appropriate way, um, the way not to destroy relationships, the way to... Uh, maintain them, cultivate them, and see them endure over the years. Number one, first and foremost, trust people. Number one, trust people. Give them the benefit of the doubt that what they say is true. Trust is the foundation of relationship. We want to be trusted, but we've got to be trusting and trustworthy to have true relationships of depth. We have to believe and be willing to accept that what people say to us about us is true. Believe in people. This is huge. It is monumental. Believe in people. Believe that they can do it. Believe that they're capable of great things and of being a great friend. Let yourself believe and let yourself love. When you start to believe in someone and start to trust someone, 
you will start to feel attached to them. And the reason why these are so difficult is we are instinctually afraid of becoming attached to people. We're afraid of feeling for people because we're afraid of at some point being hurt. We're afraid of being let down, that someone won't come through like we thought they would. You have to trust people. And the, the foundation of trust of people and of believing in people is trusting God. That no harm that befalls you by man is so overwhelming that God cannot get you through. Our ability to trust completely in God is what enables us to trust people and allow them to hurt us and that it doesn't stop us from moving forward. Be faithful to people. Even be faithful to people means don't give up on them. Be faithful to people means that when someone lets you down and someone disappoints you and someone turns away and someone does something that you know they should not do and you've chased them as far as you can chase them and you had to let them go, don't give up even then. Continue to pray for them. God will orchestrate the events of someone's life for the sole reason that one person has not ceased to pray for them. Don't give up. Be faithful to your relationships, even after they've been severed in the place of prayer. In fact, oftentimes it's when we finally get out of the way and we simply pray that we'll see God move because we find that we are in fact hindering his movement in someone's heart by befriending them and offering them comfort when that wasn't what he was doing. Be without offense. Don't allow others' actions to affect you. Self-controlled. Insecurity breeds offense. An offense leads to distrust, and distrust corrodes the foundation of our relationship. Ephesians 4.27 says, Do not give the devil a foothold. And he's talking about when someone wrongs us and we become angry. If you become offended, you do not necessarily have to tell the person that you've hated them for the past five years. Just release it and get over it and don't allow the devil that foothold because it will corrode your trust of that individual, and it will eat away at the foundation of the relationship that took so long to establish. Developing trust does take time, but we can do it short-term and give people the benefit of the doubt. Say, I'm going to believe them because they're a trustworthy person. They've not lied to me before. I'm going to trust them. And it still takes time to develop trust. In relationship, when someone violates trust, it's often a perceived violation of trust and not an actual violation of trust. Does anyone know the difference? It means in relationships, we perceive things all the time. I think I mentioned last week, when, when you stand up here, someone is looking off into outer space, or maybe I see someone look across the room at another person, I can perceive any multitude of different thoughts that are derived from that. Wow, I wonder why he's looking at her. I know something they don't know. Or, you know, he's tracking a fly across the room and it landed on the chair next to her. But I can perceive a m number of different things. Trust allows me to perceive the best in other people's intentions. Distrust and insecurity will cause me to perceive the worst 
in other people's thoughts or intentions. How easily we're offended is directly connected to our security in who we are in God and how we view others in regard to the measure to which we trust them. Be humble. If you know you're great, which I hope you do, spend all of your time convincing others that they're great, not telling them how great you are. Do you notice when you read through the Gospels that Jesus, he always talked about the Son of Man in the third person? He was more concerned about getting the disciples to understand that they could be great than he was them realizing how great he was. The most humble, greatest, confident people will spend their energy trying to convince others of their greatness, not looking to shine themselves. That was a late insert, so the flow is kind of a little bit off now, but that's okay. Rejoice for others' blessing and prosperity. Proverbs 11.10, when the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. There is enough for all of us to be blessed and prospered if God so chooses. Someone else's blessing does not mean there's no more left for you. I think a lot of times we get into that, at least I grew up in a home where there was a limited supply available for what each of us kids could get. Maybe there was a couple of you that that was never a concern. But if one of the siblings got something really expensive, that probably meant I wasn't going to. And we kind of developed this same thought process when we view God. You know, I see my friend and he gets into a new pair of knickers and some, some great shoes and you're just like, Dang, he just dropped 400 bones on them shoes. What about me? Someone gets a new house, and it's really easy to look at them and go, man, they're building a brand new house, and here's mine and my old thumper. And we somehow think that when one person is prospered, rewarded, blessed, that God's running out of a thousand cat- or cattle on a thousand hills. I, I know it, it is really silly, but how often does that happen to us? You hear about someone else getting something great, and rather than be like, woohoo, you're like, that son of a gee. But you don't curse because you're Christian. Amen. Be selfless and sacrificial. Let your own dreams and projects be put on hold for the sake of others. Be conscious that you may have to wait to do what you wanted to do or what you dreamt you would do to help others get done what they need to get done. You know, it's interesting. If you think about Jesus' life, it makes you wonder, what would it have looked like if he didn't care about raising up the 12? He would have been a superstar in ministry, shooting here, shooting there, greatness pouring out everywhere, but nothing left behind. To be selfless and sacrificial, often we won't get to keep plunging ahead into our own dreams and destiny and greatness. In fact, it might go on the shelf for 40 years for the sake of raising kids and other believers into their greatness and into their destiny, and you only get to come back to it 50 years down the road. That's selfless, that's sacrificial, that's love. This is a really huge one. Be grateful for other people's friendship, love, and loyalty. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Learn to be thankful. Yes, we will have to learn to be thankful. It's a part of the renewing of the mind. In a sinful state, we are not naturally thankful creatures. 
being born of God, part of the renewing of the mind, is becoming a thankful person. You will have to learn to be thankful for people's friendship of you. Trust me, you are not always the best friend in the world. I know most of us are convinced that we're the best friend and that everyone else is just a little bit off, but trust me, you're not always the best friend in the world. We should feel thankful for the people who have befriended us over the years. They've had to put up with a lot. We have a tendency to place ridiculous expectations on our friends, and when they fall short, we beat the crap out of them. But we rarely ever thank them for loving us for so long, even if it's imperfectly. Anyone ever had a friend let you down? Okay, two people. Cool. Thank you, Hannah and Hannah, for being honest. Um, Everyone else, liars! People will let us down when our expectations are appropriate, but how many of those disappointments were caused because you had unrealistic expectations for your friends? Be thankful for people who love you, even if it's imperfectly. Love this one. Be gracious with the shortcomings of others. Because someone is being gracious with yours. The day I realized that I had friends that were acutely aware that I was erring, E-R-R-I-N-G, in certain matters, and yet were waiting for God to bring me to repentance was one of the most liberating days of my life. light bulb moment where I suddenly realized that I had friends who knew things that were wrong with me that they hadn't confronted me about because they knew my heart was positioned toward God that I was moving for him with him and that at his time he would expose what needed to be exposed and lead me to repentance so that I would stop doing it and instead do right and that they never said anything because they knew I was headed in the right track. It was so liberating because what then is realized is it's not our responsibility to make people perfect right now. It's our, this isn't to say that you will never rebuke, correct, or chastise someone. That's a normal part of friendship, as I said last week. What it means is our primary and chief duty is to make sure they're headed in the right direction and open to the voice of God for correction. Look to someone's heart to see if they are after God. If so, and they're willing to heed his correction or the correction of others, there are times where we need to allow him to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. He is faithful to complete the work he began in them. You are not responsible for their perfection nor their destiny. You're there to help keep them heading in the right direction. Like I said, there will be times where rebuke, correction, and chastisement is necessary. And those often happen when people are unwilling and unable to hear correction from the voice of God because they've hardened their consciences and justified the way that they live. However, when you see something in a friend that you know is errant, ask God first, are they listening on this issue? He will give you the wisdom and the timing with which to bring correction, if at all. Remember that our friends are God's children like us. And he wants them healthy more than we do. And he will help us, help them into health, when needed, if we'll ask him and listen. Let's not be quite so eager just to point out fault. 
because often we're doing it to make ourselves feel better. Consider that others may have better ideas than you do and have a different approach that is better or at least as good as yours. Again, we may not have it all figured out when we're 20 years old. If we do already have it all figured out, and this is as good as it gets, yippee, that's awful. I hope there's more available in God than what I now know. No matter if what I now know is a hundred times what I knew five years ago. Romans 12.10 says, Love one another with brotherly affection and outdo one another in showing honor. Hey, Josh, could you turn the light on? Because it's getting dark up here. Thanks. It's really easy. Well, it's really bright in the back. And then I look down here and I'm like, I'm 70 years old and can't see anything. It's really easy to honor our friends when they're doing something that we like and agree with. When I see someone do something great, it's easy to honor them. Wow, he's a genius. He gets it all right all the time. It's really hard to honor my friend when they disagree with me vehemently. Honoring someone truly is when you value what they have to say when it contradicts with what you think. This does not mean you have to accept non-biblical theology, terrible doctrine, or even bad ideas. But how you value their idea and opinion matters greatly. Much better. Thank you, sir. Outdo one another in showing honor. Be gentle and kind, treating others with the awareness that they're God's beloved child. We have no right to snap at people or be rude. Treat them respectfully, even more so in rebuke. Don't be bullheaded and need to be right all the time. If you're right... You don't need them to know it. If you're in a disagreement with someone and you're right and you know it, let's give you an example. For some of you that are colorblind, this is not a fair test, but I'm going to do it anyway. I'm holding a blue pen. And let's just say Adam's colorblind in the back and he looks up here and he's like, that is not a blue pen. That is a pink pen. And I look and I go, Adam, this is a blue pen. And Adam says, that is a pink pen. Now, if I'm bullheaded and stubborn and I need to be right, I will stand here and argue and I will throw it at him. Adam, you look at the pen yourself. It's blue. I mean pink. Think I don't know color? I know color. I do color. Pink. And you become rude, you become stubborn, you become bullheaded. But if I know this pen is blue, and Adam thinks this pen is pink, I don't need him to agree with me that I'm right. I know I'm right. So I'll go, Adam, while I disagree with you and I think it's blue, I'm going to put the pen down and move on. And someday when your eyes are opened and your mind is renewed and you see the truth, you will come back and know then that I saw the blue pen. When you're right, it's okay if they don't know it at the time. Be kind, be gentle, tell them the truth, but let them come to the understanding that you were right of their own accord. You have every right to express it, explain it, and show them why the pen is blue. But ultimately, if they've chosen to see it as pink, let them see it that way and either 
they'll be dealt with in due time or they'll come to see it as a blue pen in due time. This does not mean compromise on what's true. Okay? You, you never need to compromise on what's true to treat people with honor. Consider others as greater than yourself. For some of you, this is comical. Because you see everyone else as greater than you. So for some of you, you read this and you're just like, easiest command in the Bible. Consider others as greater than I suck at life. And so it's really easy for you to fulfill this one. But love yourself, that's basically impossible. And then we have the other end, probably like me. Consider others as greater than yourselves. Lord, I can't lie. <laughs> and we think we're better than everyone. And that if people just saw how great we really were, they'd value you as we should be valued, and then we'd have that 55-year-old multimillionaire lifestyle that we so deserve because we are better than everyone else. Philippians 2.3, humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Know, though you may be great and though you may be strong, others are great and others are strong. Know that you will have strengths in areas no one else does, and that makes you great and valuable in that area. But know that you need them because they have strengths in areas that you are completely weak and have no ability or knowledge. Be humbly conscious how little you really know. That you're constantly learning more and better ways to do things. We are on an internal journey into the knowledge of God. Most of us have been on this journey for less than a decade. We're talking billions and billions of years, and often we have the audacity to think we have it all figured out. What we know wouldn't even make a ripple where it dropped into a pail. And that's okay. That's the way it's supposed to be but we at least have to be aware how little we truly know. And constantly be looking for ways to learn more. Others will know things you don't know. So in disagreement, remember that even though you may be right, you could be wrong and certainly have been before. So be kind and gentle. There's nothing worse than arguing with someone because you know you're right. The pen is pink. And six months later, have the light bulb go on that the pen is blue and have to go back and not only apologize that you were wrong, but apologize for treating them like a moron and they were right. And it's almost as bad for being right and treating them like a moron for being wrong. We can treat them with total respect, absolute love, gentleness, kindness, self-control, and know for a fact that they are absolutely wrong in their views and yet be honoring and respectful throughout our disagreement. In the same regard, listen when people give you their advice, particularly seasoned people of the faith. Please don't make the mistake of looking at them as old school, fearful, or irrelevant. They have likely learned multitudes of valuable lessons throughout the crucible of experience that they'd love to share with you if they thought you'd listen. How sad is it that there are people that we walk past every day with white hair or graying hair, filled with knowledge, understanding, and wisdom that never gets shared because we're a generation that already knows it all. 
we can change that. We can be aware how little we know. Even the most mature should be aware that you lack the life experience that those who have gone before you have. Maturity of age means nothing when matched with maturity of experience. I don't care how mature you are. If you don't have life experiences to match those that have gone before you, I would take their counsel over yours a thousand times. It's seasoned with the understanding that comes through hindsight. We have people walking around that never get tapped for their knowledge, wisdom, and understanding because we think we already know it all. What an atrocity. Blessed art thou among women. I don't know. It's in the Bible. Be thankful for what you've been given, even if it isn't as much as someone else was given. God knows what you need and how much he wants you to have. And don't be afraid to go work to try to get more. If you're laboring diligently and have little, maybe that's your assignment. And that's okay. Rejoice. If you're not laboring diligently and you have little, labor diligently, you may have more. Like I read last week, the Proverbs is full of the reward that comes upon the diligent. But be thankful for what you've been given. And it allows you to rejoice when someone else is giving some, given something that you wanted. Be a giver and a receiver, not just a receiver. Acts 20.35, it's more blessed to, blessed to give than to receive. Don't always look for the handouts and use your resources to accomplish the vision you've been given. If you have a vision, the resources will accompany that vision. Often, we look for others to support our vision because we don't want to pay the price of having to use our own resources to get it done. Be a giver and a receiver. This is a really good one that, that I... I don't know if I've ever mentioned this. Hide the dishonor of your friends. It's kind of hard, admittedly. Right? One of our friends does something stupid. And what's the first thing we do? We call all of our mutual friends for prayer requests. Dude, he was wasted last night. You wouldn't even have believed it. He couldn't even get himself up off the floor, but he really needs some prayer. God bless him. I was calling Dan, looking for prayer for this guy, and he's you know he's an idiot, you know, and he's back backslidden, and he needs Jesus, and this is what he did. He was with this girl one night and this girl the next night, and but let's just pray for him together. Oh yeah, yeah, let's pray. We're actually to hide the dishonor of those that are our friends that sin. In Genesis 9, and there's a reason for this. <clears throat> One, it's because it doesn't need to be made public. And two, when they repent, they aren't already publicly shamed. Genesis 9. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. What is he talking about? I thought Noah was the guy with the boat. He drank of the wine and became drunk and laid uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, Noah's son, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside, Hey, look at that out there, he's plastered. Then Sham and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their own father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. 
he also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. Listen, if you have a friend who's done something that's wrong and you don't know what to do, go to one person you trust or two at most and ask them for counsel as to what should you do if you do not know what your response should be. Beyond that, no one else needs to know. Pray. If you want people to pray, call them and say, hey, there's something going on. I just need you to pray. The Lord knows what you're praying for. This does not need to be a social media post. Seeking prayer requests for the naked and drunkenness of Noah. That's what Ham did. He exposed his father's shame. In relationships, when we have friends who err, we do not need to let everyone know, particularly if we already know what needs to be done about it. If you know you need to talk to them and what you need to say, then probably no one needs to know other than one person to whom you're going to hold yourself accountable. This is what I'm going to say to that person. I need to let you know because I want to make sure I'm out of line. Nope, you're right. Go tell them. And it's in confidence there. Do not shame those who sin. And shame them. However, if someone continues in sin, as the New Testament demonstrates, there are times where they're called out in front of the entire congregation in their sin. And they're told, we know what you're doing, this is what you're doing, everyone's a witness to it, and it's to cause them to be ashamed and repent. But there's a method before you have to get to that point. And we do not look to shame people for where they've erred, made mistakes. This is a really important one, and a really, really valuable one. Learn to disagree and still be friends. does not mean on sock color or whether or not you like my sweater or my vest. Mary. And I had this sweet vest tonight. Oh, yeah. Dan, was, Dan would have been pumped. And I'm like, I'm going to rock it. And I went to put it on. And before I could even get it buttoned, one of the buttons fell off. And I'm like, no! And Mary's like, yes! <laughs> but it's okay, she can be wrong. <laughs> the pen is blue. <laughs> it's okay to disagree and still be friends on matters that are more important than my vest or my sweater. This is an interesting observation. Maybe it's not true for you, but I've observed it to be true times, have you ever noticed that we'd rather be close to non-Christians than with Christians with whom we don't share all the same opinions? That's pretty common. I'd rather be friends with non-Christians and just not talk about anything than be friends with that Christian person. And we are not on the same page. This is awkward. I can't even be in the same room with them. They want to take communion every afternoon. I think it should be once a month on the third Sunday. <laughs> but seriously, disagreement creates conversation if done correctly. This conversation allows us to explore and expand in ways we never would have been able to had we only seen our own perspective. If you've ever studied the life of um, Abe Lincoln, he intentionally selected men to be a part of his cabinet with, he, with whom he disagreed the most and who were his greatest competitors as he sought election for president. And he surrounded himself with men who disagreed with himself. It's amazing. He was so confident, so comfortable in his own skin, his own mind, his own ability to discern what would be best, that he could sit and listen to a room full of seven other men argue for hours and somehow come away with the best decision. Disagreement will help shape better ideas than we could come up with on our own.
because we're built differently and we're very diverse, we have people that are stronger in certain areas than we are. They're wired differently. They're built differently. They feel things more than we feel. We may analyze things differently than they analyze. This causes different perspectives, different perceptions to be present on every issue. And there should be disagreement when looking at the same issue from eight different sides. But if we're comfortable with disagreement, we can sit and listen to this conversation and this discussion and come out with a better whole than would have ever come out if there were only one perception, one perspective, one piece of the pie. There are better ways to doing things often than we could have come up with on our own. Take precautionary measures to ensure that you and your friends are protected from sinning. <clears throat> First Corinthians 10:12. Lest let anyone who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. This is for any of us who think we're above temptation. Be smart about what you share with whom. I love that we can all have great friendships as family, male, female, and the like, but it is moronic to think that we are above temptation. It is foolish to think that we can sit with someone of the opposite gender and talk about issues of sexuality and the rest that we were created to have and think that no one will be tempted. It's foolish. And the Bible tells us, do not do this. Let anyone who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. This will protect your relationship and sustain it for the long term. Do what you said you would do. Follow through on your commitments. James 5.12, but above all things, my brothers, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by earth, neither by any oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no. If, you're, if you say you will be somewhere, be there. If you've promised to do something for someone, do it. If you made a commitment to a person or a group, follow through with it, through good, bad, ugly, easy, until the commitment period is through, do not quit in the middle. When I was playing sports growing up, we had a rule in our family that if I ever laid on the ice and did not crawl to the bench, if one of my legs was not broken, I was done for the season. We were forbidden from quitting in the middle of anything that we started. If we started playing a game and we were losing, and we were playing to 10, and we're down 8 nothing, and we quit, we were done with that game. We are not allowed to play that game anymore because we had to learn faithfulness, follow it through until the end. Do not quit. Do not give up in the middle of something that you committed to do. This is particularly true in the case of relationships. Love yourself. Ephesians 5.29, for no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth, I'm so proud of myself, and cherisheth it, even as the Lord, the church. That was two F words in the same sentence, just for some of you guys. Love your neighbor as yourself. He's commanding you to love yourself and to love your neighbor in a like fashion. Love yourself. This is not pride. This is acceptance of what God created in you, what he said he enjoys, and that he created you for something valuable. Valuable does not mean fame. It does not mean fortune, and it does not mean that everyone's going to know your name. Valuable means that you were built to do something for which he created you to do. And when you do it, 
you are valuable to him. Give glory to God by speaking honestly about your state of being. If you're great, say so. If you're not, say so. Be real, be transparent, be honest. Don't make up bad stuff so people will feel sorry for you. Don't make up good stuff so people will think you're great. Just be honest. If you're having a great time, tell people about it. Don't just make something up so that they're like, Charles, it's always so rough on him. Just be honest. If you're struggling, tell someone you're struggling. But don't just stay there for the sake of getting pity. Be honest. Let someone help you through. That's why we're honest and transparent in relationships, so that someone can grab us where we are and help us through, encourage us forward, pull us out, celebrate with us. You ever watched a movie by yourself? No, nobody else. Okay, I have watched movies by myself. And it's stinky when you're watching a great movie, particularly one that's really funny, and you're like, bah! Ah! Frick. It sucks. It's a, it's a great movie. And you just want someone there to share that moment with? That's what transparency is about. It's this great moment that you need to share with someone else because it's, it's greater when it's shared with family with, in relationship. There's some like cheesy cliche lines that I'm not even going to pull out, but you guys have probably all read them on Facebook. A burden shared is a burden less than a happy shared is a happy tripled. I don't know. It's, there's a couple of them. Just, just Google it. Kyle remembers. Thank you. Just be honest. Think hopefully on that which is good and for which you are thankful. Philippians 4.8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Love that. Trust me, you will be a much more enjoyable person to be around. Self-control, take every thought captive. Would you rather be someone who's constantly thinking about how horrible things are? How terrible your day is. I'm so busy, I can't even think. And then your friends come around and they're like, hey, what's up? My life is awful. I don't know why any, people just don't like me don't know or you have a choice what are you going to think about are you thinking about the things that you've been given responsibility for about the joys that you have in your current situation who would you rather be a friend to I love being a friend to someone when I'm struggling with someone and I come to them and I say man I am just wrestling with I'm so frustrated and discouraged I can't figure anything out and this is awful, and they go, yeah, but ding, 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 and they list off four great things. I mean, you know, these are good problems to have to figure out, aren't they? And you're like, I suck at life. I love you. You're so helpful. And those are the kind of people that launch us into something that we wouldn't be if we were left to our own thoughts. Acknowledge when you've made a mistake and apologize. This is a huge life principle. If you can't acknowledge when you made a mistake, you're walking under the law and a misunderstanding of what our Father is like. When you've done wrong or mistreated someone, admit it, confess your sin to one another that you may be healed. Listen. It's always good to acknowledge when you were wrong. It shows a security that who you are isn't changed by whether or not you're always right. A lot of us place a lot of our security and our confidence in being right all the time. We don't want to make mistakes, and if we do mistake, we don't want to, we do make a mistake, we don't want anyone to know it because we think 
that our security, our acceptance, people's love of us is because we don't make mistakes. We've got it together. We're perfect. And our ability to come out and say, I messed up big time. Yesterday, I made a mistake. When we were arguing over the pink and blue pen, I was wrong, and I'm sorry. You were right. That takes tremendous security to be able to come to someone and look them in the face and say, I was wrong and you were right. It brings healing and liberation to do that. I see often where we're unable to enjoy true depth of relationship because we won't let ourselves love, feel, care, and desire. We're afraid of those things. We're afraid to start to feel attached to someone. We're afraid to start to care for someone, to trust someone, to believe in someone, to hope in someone. We're terrified because we don't want to be hurt. We don't want to be disappointed. We don't want to be let down. We want to be able to believe in someone and have them never hurt us. Other than Jesus, that's not even true. It will never happen. Even Jesus will hurt you. Anybody ever been disappointed by what God orchestrated in their lives? No. So he hurt your feelings. I love this thing. We will get hurt in relationships. Guaranteed. There. Cat's out of the bag. Does everybody feel better? You're going to get hurt in a relationship. Even if someone didn't do something wrong, you're going to get hurt because you perceived that they did something wrong. But hurts are healed through forgiveness. We will get hurt in relationships because we're not perfect and they're not perfect. You will hurt others, and they will hurt you. The only way for relationships to grow stronger and endure year after year is to become great at forgiveness. We can stand here, I could stand here, as you well know, for hour upon hour, yammering. And we could become relational experts and become the best relationship people on the planet. And people could come to Marquette just to learn about healthy community and relationship because we figured it out and we would still hurt each other because we're still imperfect. We would perceive something wrong. We would assume something that wasn't true. Someone would let us down. Something would happen that we didn't think would happen. Or God will disappoint us. And we will get hurt in our relationships. And if we do not become masters of forgiveness, we will not have relationships long term. Trust is the foundation of relationship. Forgiveness is the mortar that keeps patching it back up when trust is broken. Absolutely true. Trust will be fractured. Trust will be damaged because we are imperfect people interacting with imperfect people and we will need the mortar of forgiveness to put those relationships back together. If you become great at one thing, become great at forgiving people. Become great at receiving forgiveness so that when you make a mistake and someone else has to forgive you, you're willing to accept it and receive the restoration of relationship. think yeah. if you think you've not erred in relationship you're walking in pride 
And with all this, trust being foundational, the mortar for restoration being forgiveness, one of the main keys is the humility that says that I may not know everything. Guys, it's so hard. We want to be confident. We want to, we want to think that we have these grand new ideas and that we're going to paint this perfect picture and that no one else has figured it out yet. Please, please, if this is you, repent of this pride and ask someone who's gone before you, what is a better way? But as we forge ahead in relationships and we do want to see the family of God live like the family of God, it's available. These are some of the principles that will make our relationships smoother that will make it easier to enjoy one another and appreciate one another and value one another. But the two keys that cannot be removed are learning to trust people and be willing to believe. And the second is when that trust is violated, you must forgive and forgive as soon as you can. The longer you hold on to that offense, the stronger that foothold becomes the more bitterness takes root and the more difficult it is to see that relationship restored. Immediate forgiveness can bring immediate restoration, but you may be the one who needs to admit you were wrong first. Amen? Amen. So I'm going to pray. We're going to put some music on. Um, I think the leaders are going to go downstairs. I'm going to be up here for a little bit. Um, if you need prayer or, uh, you know, one of the first things was you, it's okay. Um, just get it taken care of before you leave. Just don't keep doing it if it's been exposed as wrong. Please don't be stubborn. So, Father, we love you. We thank you for your word, which teaches us. We thank you for your word, which is higher and more relevant to eternal relationships than anything that we now know. So, Father, I ask that you reveal in our minds the reality of what relationships are supposed to look like according to your word. Lord, you describe it. It's just up to us to accept it and embrace it. So, Father, create in us a people that are willing to trust one another. And yet, Lord, as that trust is violated or we perceive that it's been violated, teach us to be great at forgiving and admitting fault. Teach us to be great at apologizing for where we've been wrong. Teach us to be great at accepting the forgiveness of others. And teach us to be great at giving forgiveness to them. How many times must I forgive my brother when he comes to me? Seven times? 77, over and over, never ending. So Father, teach us to be great in relationship, that we might enjoy the fullness of favor that's found, the richness that's available in your family. Father, we love you. Amen. Amen.